This is an ABC podcast. Are you happy with your life? And how exactly does that feel? Is happiness comfortable and relaxed? Or the relief when you cross the finishing line after a gruelling marathon? I'm Paul Barclay, and in this Big Ideas, pleasure, pain and the key to happiness. Psychologist Paul Bloom investigates why we choose to suffer in the pursuit of happiness. He's the author of The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning. He's speaking here with Matthew Taylor from the British think tank, the RSA. Why do we choose to suffer? There's sort of an answer which your economist would give, which is sometimes we choose to suffer because we have to, because it's, it's a route to things we want. You know, if you're taking care of a baby, you better wake up in the middle of the night and feed it. You know, if you, if you need the money for a job, you gotta take the A15 to the city and work hard and all that stuff. And that doesn't need much explaining. But I'm very interested in chosen suffering. We often get pleasure out of exercise. We like hot baths. We like frightening movies. And then at a deeper level, we often choose larger projects that bring us struggle and anxiety and difficulty. But we get something out of it. It's part of a life well lived. Why do we so often seek out activities that involve effort and struggle and pain? You know, but little, oh, fine, we get something out of it. But what do we get out of it? Where's the reward? Now, in some cases, again, we have kind of a simple answer. You might do your sit-ups because you want abs of steel to impress people or to be healthy or whatever. But a lot of people do things like they train for marathons and triathlons. They're in fine shape already. But they get something out of the difficulty. And once you start thinking this way, you think of a 100 examples, everything from doing crossword puzzles and and word games to the fact that many of us get a lot of pleasure, you could call it, going to movies that terrify us, reading books that make us cry. And then, of course, there's the fact that somebody who could live a perfectly comfortable, pain-free life seeks to do the sort of things you're describing yourself doing. Call it pleasure, don't call it pleasure, I don't care. But the question remains, why do we do it? And one of the important concepts in the book is that there are two different types of happiness. One which is happiness in the moment and the other which is a kind of deeper and broader idea of happiness. Right. So, so sometimes you ask people, what do you want? And people often say, well, I just want to be happy. I want a good life. I want a happy life. But happiness can mean two very different things. And we tend to use the term interchangeably. And one way to illustrate this is talk about the research. So some experiments have you walk around basically an iPhone that goes off randomly. And when it goes off, you're supposed to answer, how good a time are you having right now? How much pleasure are you having? And if it goes off a thousand times, we could average them. And that's your average happiness defined in terms of pleasure. But another sense is, I look at you right now and I ask you, you know, with your whole life, think about it. How happy are you? Is your life going well? And you give me an answer to that too. Now, it could have been that these answers would turn out to be the same. And the answers are, are related. If you're high in one, you tend to be high in the other. But they're different. There's a lot of people walking around who say, I'm very happy with my life, even if the day-to-day pleasures are small, less than average. And a lot of people who have a lot of day-to-day pleasures, but say, I'm not so happy with my life. And I think this tells us something kind of interesting, which is there's many different things you might try to maximize. You might be a hedonist and try to maximize moment-to-moment pleasure. And I think we all do that to some extent. But you might also have broader goals in mind. One of the things I argue in my book is what I call, following other people, motivational pluralism, which says that we want many things. We want pleasure, but we also want purpose and meaning. We want morality. Some of us want transcendence. And in the two different kinds of happiness, you see these different notions of a good life at war with one another. Depending on how you ask it, you could maximize one thing or maximize the other. And how rational are we in all of this? It's a surprisingly hard question to ask how rational we are. Because rationality is, you know, what do we mean by rationality? One thing is to be rational is to use logic and facts and reason to achieve a goal. So are we rational? Well, it depends what we want. If somebody decides to give up happiness to do good in the world and they want to be a moral person, then they're being totally rational. 
If someone doesn't care about morality, then maybe they're making a mistake. Rationality applies not to the goals themselves, but to sort of how we get there. But there are certain ways in which I think we're not very rational. I'll give you one example, and this isn't the kind of book that to give people advice. You know, I, I want to talk about what I find interesting and explore some interesting discoveries. But I do have one bit of advice about how people are irrational, how they could fix it. And it has to do with research on people who want to be happy. So sometimes people say, I want to be happy. And whatever sense of happiness they mean, normally they mean kind of more of a pleasurable sense. And what they do is they seek out happiness. One of the more robust findings from the psychology of happiness is that seeking out happiness, trying to be happy, is in an interesting way self-defeating. There is a strong relationship between people who say, I spend a lot of my time trying to be happy, happiness is important, and people who are not happy. Apparently, somewhat paradoxically, the best way to be happy is, for the most part, not trying to be happy, but seeking out other goods. It was John Stuart Mill who first came up with this idea, wasn't it? So John Stuart Mill, I, yes, a lot of this then was anticipated. You, much of my book could be found in the Enlightenment philosophers. And honestly, many of the insights that I talk about involving the value of suffering and the importance of meaning it can be found in religious work, certainly in, in Buddhism, but also in Christianity and Judaism and Islam. There are some great insights which I think have been forgotten. I think we're sort of living in a hedonist era where people believe mistakenly that what we all really want is a good time. But in fact, and we do want a good time. The book has a lot to say about pleasure. And sometimes, interestingly, suffering is intertwined with pleasure. But that's not all we want. We want other things. Your life as you framed it out, here you are doing a podcast. And, you know, nobody held a gun against your head to do it. You volunteered to do it. It involves work. It involves preparation. It involves struggle. What people miss is that work and preparation and struggle are valuable ends to themselves. They're part of what people view as a valuable way to live their lives. So there's an issue here that I puzzled on long and hard reading the book, which is you argue in that pursuing happiness does not make us happy. As I say, an idea that could be traced back to John Stuart Mill, and that happiness is only achieved when it's a byproduct of other things that you might be searching for, like, like meaning. But yet, I also think that in many ways, we have to work quite hard to avoid doing things which are self-defeating, which, which don't make us happy. I think you're right that there's a tension here. I think trying to be happy is a mistake. But I also think you're right that to some extent we have to be thoughtful about how we live our lives because the modern world has set traps in front of us. One obvious example is the incredibly rich environment of entertainment and social media, which is, you know, perfectly crafted to capture our attention. So if we are not mindful about it, we, or at least me, could spend hours scrolling through Twitter or scrolling through Facebook or on streaming videos, YouTube. This stuff is built to capture us. And if after doing so, after spending hours in this, I felt what a great way to spend hours. I, I'm such a, you know, I feel so proud of myself. Well, then there wouldn't be a problem. But the problem is, I think we recognize it's kind of a, a lousy way to spend our time. So yeah, it's as if I'm saying, you know, if you want to be healthy, don't obsess too much about food. But you do have to obsess enough about food to avoid eating delicious junk food all the time. And what you're talking about, sort of from the standpoint of a meaningful life, we are surrounded by the equivalent of delicious junk food. Now, I want to come back to that idea because you're, you're moving there towards, it seems to me, some notion of the importance of balance. And I want to come back to that. But before we do that, I want to take a couple of themes from the book. The first is effort. What is it about effort that makes it satisfying? Tell us more about that. It's such a puzzle because, you know, psychology doesn't have many laws, but there's one of them that's called the law of least effort, which basically says any creature when trying to pursue a goal would do it in the easiest way possible. Effort, you, you give up valuable time, you give up valuable energy. So, you know, if there's something in front of a dog and a dog wants it, a dog will go in a straight path. And for the most part, it's true of people. We try to reduce effort, except when we don't. And that's the puzzle. <laughs> and, you know, so I spend an inordinate amount of time on crossword puzzles. I don't do it well enough to, you know, to make it an, uh, an attractive feature of myself. It doesn't draw in the mates. It just do it because I like doing it. And it's kind of a puzzle as to what kind of itch that scratches. And there's some candidate answers involving, in part, a feeling of mastery. 
It feels good to be good at something. And in part, my book makes contact with the wonderful literature on flow. So flow is this idea from uh, the psychologist sadly passed away a few months ago, Mahali Csikszentmihalyi. And Csikszentmihalyi points out that people are often have the most fulfilling moments when they're in a state of difficulty and effort and struggle, which he calls a flow state where you're immersed in something. And his examples are often physical, like rock climbers. Sometimes they're like musicians or writers or poets, but there are people who, professionals at this, who immerse themselves and they lose themselves. You know you're in a state of flow when, you know, time goes by and you don't notice it. When you forget to pick up the kids, you forget to eat, you just lose yourself. And it's a funny state because it's not the same as simple physical pleasure. Flow is difficult. You're working at it. But something about how our minds are wired up, and we could talk a little bit about why it works this way, is such that the right amount of effort and struggle, it just really tickles us. And it's difficult to get there. Some people live their whole lives without any flow. But when you're there, it's somehow wondrous. Yeah, know, I, I find the science all this fascinating. So first, this kind of, the book's called The Sweet Spot, but this this sweet spot, which is something has got to be effortful enough to be engaging and for us to have a sense of satisfaction from achieving it, but not so effortful that it's completely exhausting and defeating. And the genius, for example, of video games is that they are designed, aren't they? So that every time you go up a level, you hit that spot. It's just enough harder to, to motivate you, but it's not so much harder that you kind of give up and do something else. That's right. Csikszentmihalyi says flow lies in between boredom and anxiety. You know, too easy, you get bored. If it's too difficult for you, you get anxious. And you're speaking a little bit of a paradox in the field of flow and kind of almost a counter argument, which is Csikszentmihalyi described a life full of flow as the best life possible. And in this book on a topic, which is this wonderful book, he gives these stories of people who spend their eight hours a day caught up in some graceful physical or emotional or intellectual activity, just lost in time and makes it sound like the best life ever. But you can get the equivalent of a flow state in a video game, for instance. And video games are perfectly aligned to capture us just the right level. Something as simple as Tetris is just a certain level of difficulty that works just right. And this kind of flow, which really captures us, isn't what we step back and say, wow, I'm really proud of myself for spending the last four hours playing Tetris. No, I think the other thing about effort that really interests me, we often don't, we talk about effort and ability. I don't know if it was the same when you were at school, but I, I got, I used to get rated in, in our, my school report every year and they give you a score for ability and a score for effort. So you got the ability was kind of I think one to nine and effort was A to E. So one A was the best and nine E was the worst. And many years later came across the work of Carol Dweck and her idea of growth mindsets and, and her research, which demonstrates that if children feel that the, the key determinant of whether they succeed is effort, they are much more likely to keep going in the face of adversity. Whereas if they are told that their achievement is based on ability, when they find something hard, they kind of give up because they think, well, I run out of ability. There are people who could, you know, I, I talk in my book how I ran a marathon long ago. And there are people who ran the marathon, most people, much quicker than me and in much better shape. But I worked really hard on it. Now, that's not going to win me any medals, and it probably shouldn't. But what it means is, from the standpoint of me valuing the experience, that matters a lot. Anything that you later view as meaningful, I don't think there are any exceptions, involves difficulty and struggle and the possibility of failure. And so in that regard, effort is the kind of, you know, secret sauce that could turn, turn most anything into something valuable. If you're so good at it, you do it without effort, well, you can do something else or make it harder. Because if it's easy for you, if you're the sort of person, and I know some people like this, who could roll out of bed and run a marathon that day, well, marathons aren't going to do it for you. You've mentioned meaning, Paul, and that was the thing I wanted to come to next. So uh, another chapter of your book explores explanations for why we choose pain and suffering in relation to the importance of meaning. Yeah, I, this was the chapter in my book that I found the hardest to write because so much that's written about meaning and what meaning is, it's not even wrong. It's just, you know, it's just sort of crunchy, hand-wavy stuff that is neither right nor wrong and doesn't capture really anything of interest. 
But there is some research that asks people, what do you find meaningful? What counts as meaning? At least not in some abstract sense, like they're not philosophers or theologians. Just ask people, what do you find a meaningful activity? What do you find a meaningful pursuit? And when you ask them that way, you find out certain things. A meaningful pursuit is something that involves struggle and difficulty. It makes a difference in the world. Could be a positive difference, could even be a negative difference. It is something which extends over a long period of time. It's often something socially valued. You know, climbing Mount Everest is a meaningful activity for many people or any sort of difficulty, difficult challenge. And it is rewarding. We talked about the two different types of happiness. And for the second type of happiness where I ask you, think about it, how good is your life going? Whether or not there's meaningful activities in it will have a lot of weight into how you answer that. And thinking about it this way, you could answer some sort of puzzle. So one puzzle I've long been interested in is why do people say they like having your kids? Why do people look back and say, I've had kids and I don't regret it? When the data suggests that many people, it's kind of a toss up, their lives would be happier without kids, that children are a source of financial strain and marital strain. When children are young and day to day, there's a terrible drop in happiness there's also a drop in how happy you are with your spouse and how happy you are if you're with, with other sort of short-term things. But I don't think people who say that having kids, and I would kind of say this for myself, I have two, two sons, two adult sons who I, I love very much. I don't think they would say, oh, I'm glad I had my kids because they boosted up my hedonic pleasure. What they say is it was meaningful. It was purpose. It, it, it gave purpose to my life. It felt like it mattered. And this is more this sort of second richer type of happiness. And that's meaning. Psychologist Paul Bloom speaking with Matthew Taylor from Britain's RSA. We all have competing demands in life, demands on our time, our energy and our skills. And sometimes life gets out of balance. Matthew Taylor asks Paul Bloom about the key needs that have to be met in order to feel happy. I'm interested in your view about balance and the importance of balance in life. And in this, I'm tempted to talk about self-determination theory, which I know is a kind of a core idea in a lot of positive psychology. And that is that at heart, we have these three fundamental motivational urges for mastery, for autonomy, and for connectedness. To what extent, Paul, do you subscribe to the view that, that, that in the end, the sweet spot is about finding a way of balancing the different needs that we have. I do think in some way the problem we all face when trying to live a good life, trying to live a life that we're happy with and fulfilled with, is finding proper balance. Now, we can say proper balance between what? Those list of three things that you gave are a perfectly good list. And I think that those are things, and they're often in somewhat in tension with each other, that you may want to attend to. In my book, I give kind of a different list. So I talk about, on the one hand, simple pleasure. It's a really hot day and you drink a really cold glass of water. You know, you scratch where it itches. You know, sexual pleasure, pleasure of food, the pleasure of being with people you love. But also there's morality. There's being a good person. And there, as anybody who, who is a good person in the slightest way knows, they're often intention. Often the right thing to do is not the fun thing to do. Then there's a purpose and meaning that we've been talking about. There may be other things. I have colleagues of mine who talk about the value of psychological variety, of having a life that's rich in a sense that in, it includes a lot. Some people talk about spirituality and transcendence. So the project we each have is finding the proper balance. I think the answer is going to differ for every person. But I also think that all of these ingredients probably have to be present. Now, I'm glad that you said that these things can be intention because one of the things that I kind of push back against when I read positive psychology, for example, is the sense that all good things can go together. And I'm afraid I'm kind of more with Freud on this in that, you know, Freud argues that parts of our personality are perpetually at war with each other. No, that seems right. I have my beef with various positive psychologists and the feel altogether. And I think you put your finger on one problem, which is they're so relentlessly cheerful as if everything is all going to work out once you buy their books and watch their TED Talks and take their advice. And the truth is, life is, is tragic in a sense that 
we cannot get everything we want. I think to some extent, as an evolutionary psychology type, I think we've evolved to be tremendously unsettled. Because if we were content, what good is that? What good is it to sort of stand pat? We're always going to try to make things better. And the only way to make a creature that always may, tries to make things better is never have the creature be too happy. So we're not too happy. We, we suffer from what's called a hedonic treadmill, which is after a while, something which makes us happy bores us and we're not happy with it anymore. We're stuck with motivations for morality and meaning that are at odds with our pleasure and our happiness. So, yeah, we will try to find a sweet spot, but it's not as if there's some way that we could just perfectly maximize everything and then we ascend to heaven. To some extent, I think we got to be realists and say our psychological lives are always going to have, have limits. A very simple tension is that it's probably good for a person to love other people, to love children, to love their partners, to love their friends. Love is an attachment. It's wonderful. But you don't need a psychologist to tell you this. It comes with terrible risk. It comes with risk of terrible, terrible pain. If it didn't come with that risk, it wouldn't be love. Yeah, and you quote Zadie Smith, who makes that point very eloquently. Yeah, she has wonderful discretion. I wish I could do it from memory about children. But she ends up quoting a condolence letter, which had the phrase, it hurts as much as it's worth. I love that phrase. Yeah. I put that alongside one of my other favorite quotes about, about having children, which is John Updike once said, the thing about children is they give us the courage we need to defend them, which I think is a lovely idea for people who haven't had children and think, well, I would never throw myself in front of a moving bullet to defend anybody else. Well, no, when you have children, it kind of changes you in that way. Yeah. I got to round us off, though, with a Kingsley Amos quote. It's no wonder people are so terrible when they started off as children. <laughs> There's a thing that you just refer to a few times in the book, Paul, and it intrigued me. You're not religious, but creeping out of your book at various points is a recognition that actually religious faith makes life easier in many ways. It makes suffering more meaningful. It helps with the issue of meaning. It helps with the issue of death. How big a hole do you think it leaves in our lives, the, the retreat of religion? It's a really good question. When I finished my book, I, I got a, an article in the Wall Street Journal and about it. And immediately when I published it, you get, you get emails. And the first email I got, the very first one, was a woman who was aptly furious with me. And she said, you're all in favor of suffering. You don't know anything. You don't know what it's like to live in chronic pain. She described it at length, told me I'm an idiot several times. And... She misunderstood me because I think she's right. I think chosen suffering of the sort we're talking about with effort and meaning and pursuit is wonderful. But there's so much unchosen suffering in life. Being assaulted the death of a child, you lose your job, your house burns down. And how do we cope with that? I don't think that's good. That, that lacks all of the feelings of autonomy and control. Unchosen suffering is awful. And here comes religion, though. And we actually have laboratory research on this, but the conclusion won't be surprising. If you're religious, you are much more likely to believe that this unchosen suffering carries a purpose. Not your purpose. You didn't do it yourself, but there's a plan afoot. It's for a reason. And every religion worth its salt, every religion that I, that I know of, maybe job number one is explaining suffering, explaining why do people suffer? And religion is powerful in that way, you know, and then there's a specific case of death and religion can come to the rescue there as well and say, you don't really die. Those you love didn't really die. I mean, to some extent, this brings us back to what you were saying before about tragedy, about the sort of our tragic fates. As somebody who's an atheist, I have a lot of respect for religion. I, as a psychologist, I have to have respect for religion and what it does and its power it has over people. But to some extent, I think a lot of religious faith is, is an attempt to deny a tragic truth, a series of tragic truths, that bad things happen to good people, that everybody dies, that there's no cosmic force for justice, no such thing as karma. So that any justice that there is has to be our own creation. And so it's an attempt to deny certain tragic facts. Could we do without religion? Some of us do. I think sometimes we can live and face tragic facts head on. 
But that takes me to another pretty interesting idea in your book and a final question, which is that one of the habits that you explore quite early on in the book is that we quite like kind of putting our toe in the water of suffering, don't we? People like to watch films that are violent or tragic or cry in films, but that's completely different from actually something terrible and tragic happening in your life. What's the reason, Paul, that you offer for this this desire we have to kind of put our toe in the waters of unchosen suffering? Yeah, it illustrates a couple of themes that we've been talking about. It illustrates the idea of a sweet spot in a kind of a different way, which is we all have different tolerances for this kind of suffering. Many, many people seem to really enjoy reading about BDSM or sadomasochistic sex, far fewer enjoy participating in it. And then once you dip your toe into that water, there's different degrees in which you could participate in it, and people differ. Some people like to go to really scary movies, really horrific movies. Others like to get a little little tickle of it, but not too much. I think we all, everything from spicy foods, we all have our sort of degree of tolerance. It also illustrates control. Control is very important. The same experience could be a nightmare. It could be horrible, worse than your life. If it's out of your hands while under control, it could be something you enjoy deeply. So why? Why do we like this? I think there are many reasons for it, and a lot depends on the kind of thing we're talking about. I think spicy foods has a bit of a different explanation in horror movies. But what they have in common is there's a feeling of mastery in that you are controlling it, you putting yourself into a difficult situation, and there's a pleasure to being able to do something difficult. I think in part, it's a desire for exploration, to see what something new is like, to sort of say, this is what it's like when things go bad. There's even social powers of this sort of thing. A lot of the sort of painful things we do, we do with other people to share in the pain or to broadcast how tough we are, to sometimes there's a cry for help. I think if you you think of something as sort of seemingly simple as, I don't know, eating some really spicy chicken vindaloo or watching a scary movie, you illustrate in, in this all sorts of really interesting human desires that are that are anything but simple. And, and it connects to issues of autonomy and self-determination and control and purpose and meaning. Psychologist Paul Bloom, author of The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and The Search for Meaning. Paul Bloom is a professor of psychology at Toronto University and emeritus professor at Yale. He was speaking to Matthew Taylor from the British think tank, the RSA. It's tempting to think that happiness feels the same to everyone, that you share the same emotional experiences as your friends and neighbours. And contemporary culture encourages you to tell the world how you're feeling, very different from earlier generations and in different cultures, where it just isn't done. Historian Richard Firth, God be here, specialises in the history of the emotions, and in particular, disgust. He spoke to Matthew Taylor about his book, A Human History of Emotion, How the Way We Feel Built the World We Know. I'm intrigued to know whether being an expert on emotions means that you're, are you more mindful of your own? At times, yes. I'm actually quite an emotional person in general. So not most of the time. I'm just usually my over-emotional self most of the time. But yeah, at times I'll stop and think, hang on, why am I feeling this right now? What's going on? And I'm quite mindful of it. Usually when I'm in a high stress situation and I don't want to be anymore, it's kind of handy to have that skill. It has enabled you, has it, to be more in control when you need to be? Yeah, a lot of the time. Things like public speaking, because I know things like the uh, bodily responses to high stress and excitement are exactly the same. I can kind of think myself from one to the other, which is very handy when you're about to step in front of a few hundred people and talk about disgust. How you respond to emotions is controlled by very much your development, your childhood, and so your culture. And it's just a different, pretty much different upbringings. I'm in a similar situation. My wife is uh, very emotional. And the reason I got into disgust is because she's an emetophobic. She has a fear of vomit. And so I wanted to understand what was going on in her head, because I don't. It's yucky, but it's not. I don't freak out when the surface isn't clean because there might be a bacteria on it. And it's literally my family are kind of brought up very differently to hers. We were very, I'm not going to say robust, but we were... We, were, we had a dad who was very much, stop being silly, get over it, 
crack on from when we were very small. So we were brought up to believe that you don't respond quite so powerfully to emotions, even though I am quite emotional in a lot of ways. You don't let them consume you. Whereas her family used to row all the time and stuff. They were very given to letting their emotions go, letting them flee. And it's everybody has their own emotional landscape that they live in. It's not, there's lots of talk about universal emotions and all sharing the same emotions. And whether we do or not is a kind of a question. But even if we do, we don't all experience those universal emotions in the same way because we're all brought up differently to react to them in different ways. And of course, we can't, my wife and I get inside each other, you know, we, we, we probably know each other as well as any two people can possibly know each other, but we can't get inside each other's heads. And this is one of the challenges, isn't it? That we're talking here about differences between two people in the same culture. But when it comes to the question of, well, what about people who live in a completely different culture? And that's a question that crops up quite a lot in your book about the kind of methodology of trying to find out whether other people feel differently about the world. Yeah, the history of emotions, which is basically this book is my advert for this field that people don't know about, which I think is great, which is why I do it. The whole process is us trying to say, you know, when we look at history and we assume when somebody's angry, they're angry like us. Well, are they? Finding ways to look at it more closely, finding tools and methodologies to really pull the language apart and the not just language sometimes artwork sometimes even buildings and things and objects to see what the emotions those actually were are they alien to us are they the same as us are they somewhere in between and i could talk for two hours about the various techniques and methodologies there are lots of them but generally it's trying to find out what the emotional world what we call the emotional regime that these people lived in what were the boundaries of how they're allowed to react to things within their particular culture or time period, usually both, and pick out these sort of differences, because that's what interests most of us, not the similarities, the differences. It's easy to go back and say, that person saw that horrible picture and thought it was disgusting, full stop. But I'm like, yeah, but what does that mean? What do they actually feel about it? That's kind of where we are. And part of an emotional reaction, of course, is a reaction to things, a shock to the system, as it were. And I guess I guess one of the things that must have changed over history is that, I don't know, if you take a time where you had very high levels of child mortality, average life expectancy in the 30s or 40s, but also at the same time a very strong religious belief. Now, that's a point where, where people's attitude to death, both in terms of the fact that it's all around them, but also the sense that death is not the end because of their strong religious belief. We live now in a time when when death has become kind of pathologized. Death is terrifying. We don't have we're not comforted about it, and it, it feels like a kind of tragedy whenever it happens. Now, is that an example in a sense of of a way in which this would have shaped our emotional responses to something as fundamental as as I say as death? Yeah, I mean, the history of death is its own field, equally as interesting, I'd say. But yes, it, it is that kind of thing that the world you grow up in, if you grow up in a world where death is all around you, where people are executed for stealing apples, you know, and people die in childbirth and babies often die young and children die young, then you do have a very different emotional landscape. The way you're supposed to react is different. Now, what's interesting is if you look at private letters and diaries in the past, People did really grieve their children when they lost them, but not necessarily in public. So there's one of your differences that you would keep these things more private. Now it's a thing. If you're seen not grieving for the death of your child, you're a monster. Back then you were sort of, well, get on with it. <laughs> Have another one. Even though personally they would still hurt because of course you would. You're, you've evolved to have offspring and if the offspring dies and you're gonna hurt it's just inners so that is a good example yeah but it's more about the if you like the performance the way you're supposed to behave around that emotion as much as anything and that's what the regime is it's this set of rules as to this is how you're supposed to react and if you don't you have some kind of outcast and that chimes, doesn't it, with philosophers through the ages who have encouraged us to feel that we can and we ought to control our emotions. Yes, as far back as the ancient Greeks, which is probably the first people who wrote about their feelings in any kind of detail, in a sort of philosophical way. 
it's been a thing that you are supposed to closely guard and control your feelings. As far back as Plato wrote about Socrates, Socrates, when he was about to take his own life because he'd been found guilty of various crimes that he probably was guilty of, all his followers started weeping and he, he rebuked them. He said, no, what are you crying for? He essentially said, I'm the one dying. What's up with you? You know, stop it. You shouldn't behave like that. And it's it's a big thing in philosophy that there's this idea that you must control your emotions. You must, they are somehow harmful to you if you keep them. Even now you'll see people in debates using this logical fallacy of argument ad emotion. And it's sort of, but you can't not have emotion. The very fact that you've come to a view on this means you feel something about it. We know that. We've done the science. We've shown that you can't make a decision without a feeling. So... It's not a real separation, yet philosophers persist in trying to separate these things. They know we will sit calmly and rationally and we'll think about these things and we will not let emotions affect us. Well, sorry, it doesn't work like that. If it worked like that, then we'd have gone extinct a long time ago because we wouldn't have run away from the bear in the bush. You know, we'd have gone curiously to have a look what's in the bush and been eaten. So, you know, it's- And the bear in the bush is interesting because... Part of this kind of philosophical tradition is about how we distinguish ourselves from other animals, which is to say other animals have these visceral kind of responses, but we alone as human beings are able in our brains, in our minds, to be able to distance ourselves. And so in a sense, this notion of controlling our emotions is also connected to the kind of notion of the distinction between mind and body. And of course, One of the things you write about at various points in the book is the need to understand that emotions don't just occur in the mind, or another way of putting it, the whole body is part of the mind. Yes, emotions are a bodily experience. You feel things in your gut, not in your head, as an example. Emotions come from our perception of the world around us, and the perception of the world around us is mostly not in our heads. Yes, eyes and scent and ears are kind of in our heads, but they're not in our brains. And our fingertips and our awareness of where we are and our understanding of the world around us is all part of what constructs an emotion, and that's all a bodily thing. And your reactions when you have an emotion triggered is very physical. You'll have neuroscientists say, it's in the amygdala to which you respond, so why does the hair on the back of my arm stand up? That's not in my amygdala. That's on the back of my arm. And why is my body about to run away? And you can say, yeah, because the brain's about to tell it to. But it's still the body having a physical reaction. And you being aware of that physical reaction, in fact, that tells you you are in an emotional state. It's not until you realize that you are frightened, that you know that you are frightened, and you know that you are frightened because your body is reacting in a certain way, not because you've sat and rationally thought about it with your brain. You appraise your bodily state and say, right, I think I'm frightened because I'm shaking and I want to run away. (laughs) Um, So it is very much a whole bodily experience. They are feeding back on each other all the time. One's sending a bit of information, the other's sending information back. And that's kind of, I've heard emotion described as a languageless data collection system to help guide you. And I quite like that. With emotions, the group is very, very important because every group, it's another thing within the history of emotions known as an emotional community. Within a community, you will have a shared emotional, if you like, I'm going to say language. It's probably the best word for it. You have certain ways that you express your emotions, even within a small group that you develop from the bottom up. And emotion without that isn't anything. It's, you know, there's no reason to behave in a certain way. There's no reason to react apart from a stimulus response to run away. And that is part of emotion, but it's not all of it. Emotion's got a lot more baggage than that, a lot more depth and a lot more to it than just a stimulus response. And that's where the group comes in. You have an in-group and you behave a certain way within your in-group and have certain emotional responses. And the out-group may have very different emotional responses that seem kind of odd. And that may be one of the ways that you differentiate yourself from the out-group in that they emotionally respond in that way and we in this way. Um, At the moment, a nice topical one is the wearing of masks. People in the East have always worn masks when they're ill or for a longest time have, they don't worry about it. And one of the reasons they don't have a problem is the way that they express a lot of their emotions is through the eyes. If you look at emojis, you can see in sort of Asian emojis that it's a lot of the mouth stays the same, but the eyes change depending on what emotion they're trying to express. We use the bottom half of our face 
So we put a mask on and we can't emote to each other very well anymore. And I think that freaks us out a little bit because our group's way of doing things is very different. But that's a group thing. You need to have a group to have that kind of problem, really. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the East in the sense that this notion of wanting to free ourselves of emotional responses almost is, of course, a a big part of Eastern religious ideas, particularly Buddhism, this notion that in a sense, the human tragedy is the fact that we are continuously responding to stimulus. And actually, the perfection of the human state is to get to the point at which we are almost unaffected. Yeah, it's the pursuit of what is known, I think, second order desires, the desire, the desire to desire, in this case, the desire to not desire. And it's the desire to not desire anything, any stimulus, any possessions, any feelings, any acknowledgement that the outside world exists is a very Buddhist thing. And so the only real emotion you're supposed to have, and this is a strange paradox of Buddhism, is desire, but it's also the one emotion you're not supposed to have. But they differentiate two different kinds of desire. There's one called clinging, which is the bad one which is clinging to objects, clinging to things, clinging to relationships, clinging to the world, because, of course, the world, they think, doesn't really exist. It's all a bit of a mirage and illusion. You have to get beyond it. And the other desire is the one of focusing in on trying to look internally and meditate and get to nirvana, get to that state where you realise what's real and can move beyond it. Yeah, desire is a powerful force throughout history. It's one that's really interesting me at the moment. It's the flip side of disgust, so I've always had one eye on it. But in the case of a lot of religions, desire is the sort of or attitudes towards it are a powerful driving force. And we've seen, haven't we, over recent years, the rise, although it seems to have kind of slightly peaked now, but the rise in interest in mindfulness, which was partly a complement to that Buddhist tradition of, of meditation, but also, I think, a response to the sense that we are continuously overstimulated in the modern world. As we've come to know more about emotions, the way in which so much of society from politics to advertising has become about the business of deliberate emotional manipulation. Yeah. I mean, art, that's what art's for, I would say, most of it. Art is there to manipulate you emotionally. Even things like the John Cage piece of music that has no music in it, it's just silent for 14 minutes, 11 seconds, I think it is. The whole point of that is it's supposed to create an emotional response of you sat there going, what's going on? Why is nothing happening? What? Hey, I don't get this. And get tense as nothing happens. And religion has realized for thousands of years that this powerful response you get from art works really well. That's why most religions are full of art, full of things that can make you feel a certain way. Churches are quite something. I'm not religious at all, but I walk into a an old church and I feel something. And that's the design of the building. It's there to impose on you. It's there to create a certain emotional space of you to think, whoa, this is a bit powerful in here and that again is the response of art and of course these days ad executives are very good and people who make movies are very good at that same thing of creating these emotional responses tapping into things they know how to press the buttons and again it's very cultural you might it's interesting to me that there are some films from other parts of the world that seem to be universal we get the humor and we get the power of them, things like parasite in the case of emotional content and humour. But you also will sometimes find that people from those cultures laugh in different places or cry in different places, which is itself kind of curious. There's their own language of manipulation going on there. But yeah, it's the bedrock of politics, emotional manipulation, despite what they say. It's all about manipulation. Otherwise, they wouldn't just use short slogans all the time. They'd come out and carefully explain their policies to you, which they don't do. They prefer to hit you in the heart rather than the mind, because that works. In a sense, we have suffered, I think, from emotional manipulation, both through consumer capitalism and through politics. Is is that a genie we can ever put back in the bottle? I'm not sure we can. I'm not sure it's been in the bottle as far as I can tell, looking back into history. Recently, it has become worse again. Populism does come and go throughout history in different various guises. And 
it's a difficult one because the answer to it is something that will never happen, which is a good hard look at how we do our politics and how we do our democracy and and things like party politics is having a tribal system of politics a good idea or should we get rid of parties and just have representatives who each are allowed to independently voice what they really think but it's difficult because people like to congregate in groups and little groups with emotional communities attached it's just sadly human nature so how we pull that out of politics and say Right, we need to stop this. We need to have real conversations. I'm not entirely sure. But it seems to me that's part of the power of your book is for us to think about what is going on at the collective level in terms of the manipulation of emotions and what we would need to do collectively. Not to all become, you know, the Buddha and and, and to sit in a kind of state of desireless calm, but not to continuously react in ways which take us to places we don't want to go. So, so Richard, there's so much to talk about, but I want to take us to the end of the book, because at the end of the book, you talk about this debate that's been rolling around now for you know several decades between the kind of universalist view, which is that in the end, we all have the same emotions. We might give them slightly different names. And of course, they emerge in different contexts, as we were talking about with death earlier on. But in the end, they're fundamentally the same, versus the view that no, actually, there are enormous cultural differences. And in a sense, we can never really know how other people feel emotions because of the importance of those differences. My conclusion is, as I say in the book, the answer to the nature-nurture debate, as usual, is yes. It looks like there are some deep-set feelings we evolved to keep us alive. Running away from the bear in the bush is a case in point. But on top of those comes as I said earlier, our development, our cultural constructions upon those feelings, our understanding of contexts. So if you see someone who looks angry, are they angry or are they celebrating a goal? It's a very similar expression. It's a very similar reaction out of context. You could think that person wants to hit you rather than they're doing a fist pump because they've scored. And so there's all these layers. So the cultural side of things seem to be looking at the layers, the complexity, the context a lot more and the universalists are looking at the stimulus response the basic things and when that happens that happens and i think they're talking past each other and so do quite a few other people there's some other people out there like lisa feldman barrett who's also in this hang on it's all of that <laughs> it's a feeling that creates a response that we then process appraise and understand and react to we, it's not just a feeling and it's not just an appraisal it's kind of both but it's the worry is the universal thing, the idea that there are six basic emotions, which even the person who came up with that idea, Paul Ekman, doesn't believe anymore. He thinks there are about 11. He thinks there are six that you can see on the face, and then there are some more that you can spot elsewhere. Those six basic emotions are the cornerstone of a lot of science based on the emotions, particularly things like artificial emotions and artificial intelligence, still use this science that even the people who came up with it don't believe anymore. It's kind of strange. It's just so become part of the public imagination that Disney make films about it, you know, inside out. So it's um, another thing I'm doing with this book, I think, is trying to alert people to hang on, don't take that 40-year-old science as gospel. It really isn't. It's old and we've come a long way since then and it's an interesting debate that it still rages on when i think all the people who are on the cutting edge of it are going no the debate's over it's kind of a bit of both stop it what can i say i don't know how to convince the people who are still stuck in the old stuff be they the anthropologists who are saying no it's all cultural all the scientists but i think they're getting there richard firth godby here honorary research fellow at the Centre for the History of the Emotions at Queen Mary University of London. We live in a culture which tells you to seek happiness, to banish negative thoughts and to think positively no matter what life throws at you. But social psychologist Brock Bastian says this social pressure to be happy can have the opposite effect, making the painful or difficult emotions we all experience even harder to process. I mean, happiness itself isn't overrated. I think happiness is great. Um, I, I like being happy as much as possible. Um, but I, I think that what 
what we don't realise is sometimes the psychology behind it. So sometimes, in you know, what we know from psychology is that the human mind often works in fairly ironic ways. And, and sometimes when you focus on something too much or, or try not to experience something, um, it actually produces the opposite. Uh, so a good example of this is the white bear experiment or the pink elephant experiment, whichever one you want, where you ask people to not, not to think about white bears or not to think about pink elephants. And, and ultimately, the people who are trying not to think about those things tend to think about them more. So, so we have this sort of ironic uh, internal process, and I think we've misunderstood that. So when we ask people to, you know, to, to focus on happiness, we promote the value of it, um, it also obviously suggests to them that they should avoid their negative experiences as much as possible because they simply detract from the kind of life that they're, they're wanting to live. But of course, as I just pointed out with the pink bear and white elephant, trying to avoid negative experiences tends to be counterproductive. And in fact, the, the more that we think we shouldn't have them, the, the more we try and avoid them, uh, because we inevitably do have these experiences in life, it's just a part of living. Uh, we, we don't respond to them well when they do happen. We don't know what to do with them. Um, we think they're detracting from our goal of being happy and, and ultimately we become less happy because of it. So it's it's really, happiness is good, but it, we, we need to understand carefully the psychology behind how we can achieve that and, what, and via what processes and also the traps that we can fall into in, in trying to achieve it sometimes too or promote it. What influences happiness? I mean, surely culture must influence it or is it something that's wired into our brains from evolution? media and our environments must play a role. So how do we make sense of happiness? Yeah, well, as you said, all of those things do. And, and of course, happiness is is ultimately, it depends how you understand it. So, I mean, sometimes a more narrow definition is just, you know, how many positive feelings do we have from time to time? Um, I think probably a, a better way of thinking about it is, again, as a, as a broader notion um, where it includes, you know, meaningful pursuits, engagement, those sorts of things on top of obviously those those positive feelings as well. But that, that broader definition, I think, works better for really understanding what happiness is. But uh, again, we know that I think that there is a bit of a mistaken idea that you can continually build your happiness and become you know, I, I suppose, ever happier um, and, and, and continue to to in some sense grow it. And, and I think that probably that's not possible. And, and again, this is where our evolutionary history and, and we do talk about happiness set points as well. We tend to, no matter what we do in life, we do tend to come back to somewhat of a resting baseline uh, around happiness. Um, and that this can be slightly different for different people. And part of that is because we adapt. We adapt to different circumstances. We adapt to different experiences. You know, if you if you go and uh, and and uh, rent yourself a room in a five star hotel, it's going to make you incredibly happy for a little while. Ultimately, you'll eventually get used to it, though, and um, probably that that initial you know happiness you experience won't continue. So we we continually adapt and adjust, and that does mean we tend to return to to baseline, and and that is an evolutionary process. It's part of how we've dealt with both positive environments, but more importantly, I think the reason it's there is it's how we've dealt with bad and negative environments as well, because we also adapt to those too. So look, it's a complex picture really that that really draws on and, and is influenced by all those things you just mentioned. I'm going to quote you back to you. I think you've, you said this. <laughs> the other side of happiness is embracing a more fearless approach to living. Unpack that for us. As I uh, explored more um, the, the value of some of um, our, our painful experiences. And, and again, much of my own research is actually just focused on the experience of physical pain, but, but really as an analogue to a range of difficult experiences in life. I, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that it's very hard to, to really experience any happiness in life if we don't also have its opposite. Um, and that, that means sometimes leaning into, I suppose, fearlessly in some way, um, those experiences which can seem difficult, challenging, hard, even painful, it's actually through that process that we achieve, we achieve happiness. Brock Bastian, Professor in the School of Psychological Sciences at the University of Melbourne. You can hear the full discussion by clicking the link on the Big Ideas homepage. I'm Paul Barclay. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.